stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. So maybe we shouldn't be surprised by this. I mean, obviously, uh, the Keystone XL pipeline has become very loaded politically south of the border. And unnecessarily so, I I think. But that's the reality. So it became a huge flashpoint, obviously, under President Obama. Eventually, uh, Obama decided that uh, this is not going to go ahead. He was going to veto the approval. And that seemed to be that for Keystone XL. Then along came the current president. Uh, who decided that, no, it should actually go ahead and uh, has issued a, a permit to that effect. Now, we have the announcement recently from the Alberta government that, you know, we're going to provide some support um, to, to TC Energy to get this project moving forward. Uh, and now some some questions. Uh, presumptive Democrat, um, Democratic nominee Joe Biden uh, issuing a statement over the weekend uh, asserting that if indeed he is successful in becoming the next president of the United States, that he will put an end to this project and he will uh, revoke that that presidential permit. Uh, so potentially leaving Alberta on the hook, not just for the cost of everything we're putting into the pipeline, but potentially even uh, for dismantling it if it gets kiboshed at some point. Now, Premier Kenny uh, seems to think or hope that if the pro- uh, project proceeds far enough along the road, that there's a new reality on the ground. Maybe the uh, new president, if indeed there is one, will take a different view. But there's certainly some calculated risk here. Uh, well, joining us to talk more about uh, some of these uh, many issues uh, around this uh, pipeline and where this all goes from here. Very pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Dennis McConaughey, who's a former executive VP with TransCanada Energy. He's the author of uh, the book Breakdown, The Pipeline Debate and the Threat to Canada's Future. Much more at his website, Dialogues on Canadian Energy. That's D-O-C-E dot C-A. Dennis, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Good to be with you, Rob. So, like I say, maybe we shouldn't be surprised that this is the official position of the presumptive Democratic nominee, but what did you make of it, first of all? Well, this did not surprise me. I I was not one who uh, thought of Joe Biden as a moderate Democrat anymore. I uh, always had the concern that he um, uh, would need to hold this position. Uh, It's regrettable. But people need to uh, recognize uh, he is not yet the president. And his statement yesterday that he would, quote, send the permit, uh, one of these permits has never been rescinded before. And uh, so there's still uh, considerable legal uncertainty as to how he could rescind it, especially if uh, TC Energy and its other uh, owner, which is now the Alberta government, has uh, completed uh, over the next uh, six to eight months the uh, section of pipeline that actually does cross the Canada-U.S. border. Uh, so uh, predictable, unfortunate, but there's a, um, first of all, he has to become president, and then we have to see if he can actually legally do this or not. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it, it is still hypothetical in, in some respects. But, I mean, as you say, we, we kind of knew this could be a possibility. And surely the Alberta government must have known this was a possibility when it made the decision to, to back this project. Of course they did. And I think it was a calculated risk that you could have a Democratic president who would revisit or try to disable the project. Now, I think people need to recognize uh, back in 2015 when Barack Obama didn't provide a permit 
was one thing. Uh, and TransCanada at that time sued the Obama administration uh, for uh, doing that based on it being inconsistent with the regulatory process that had preceded it. In this case, uh, TransCanada, TC Energy, is using a legal permit. Uh, at the moment, uh, that legality of that permit has not been uh, overturned by the courts, and they're proceeding. So if the Biden administration were to uh, uh, try in whatever way they were to disable this project, um, they would have to be uh, – the owners of the project, TransCan and the Alberta government, would have to be compensated. Uh, and I think they'd have a very good case of uh, winning that claim now. None of that is what Alberta wants, uh, or Canada for that matter. Getting our money back isn't as important to us collectively as getting this pipeline built and using it as a means of uh, selling Canadian Alberta-produced dilbit uh, in a world that sees a restoration of crude oil demand back to what it was pre-COVID, which I still believe will occur uh, one to two years down the road. What about this take? And, and I think this is kind of optimistic and also maybe a little cynical, but I, mm-hmm. I think right now Joe Biden needs to keep his party unified. He doesn't want to certainly contradict uh, Barack Obama. He very much needs Obama's support. Uh, so that's his position now, but that once he's president, if indeed he is, and re- recognizing that, look, there's support for this project, a lot of work has been done, that he would likely take a different view at the time. What, what, what do you make of that? I think if Joe Biden uh, is consistent with his you know, former behaviors when he w- was viewed as a, quote, moderate Democrat, there's some hope that he would recognize that he would have to provide compensation for this thing. But more than that, this would be an enormous um, breach of, uh, frankly, good faith with the Canadian government, given how important this project is to Canada. I think even yesterday, Christia Freeland recognized the significance of the project to both countries. I think one could hope that Biden would, in the light of actually uh, assessing the actual legalities, the international implications, and and frankly, how fatuous disabling KXL is as a gesture of his climate bona fides, he might reconsider. Obviously, the risk is way lower. It's non-existent if Donald Trump is president, and very problematic if it's Joe Biden. Personally, uh, I I would not be overly confident that Biden would be almost obliged even if he was rebuffed legally to try to disable this project. So, I mean, this is a calculated risk that Alberta took. It's one that I still support the Kenny government for doing. That's my personal opinion as an Albertan. Uh, but, you know, yesterday's news was not, was not good. Mm-hmm. You're right. As you say, I mean, the current occupant of the White House doesn't need any convincing. I, I do wonder, and I, I know, you know, certainly, look, I mean, uh, Albertans are not necessarily big fans uh, of the current prime minister, but I, I do wonder if there's a way that Justin Trudeau could give Joe Biden some cover. If Justin Trudeau can sell a Joe Biden on uh, all of the, the climate policies that his government is is uh, imposing, and then Joe Biden can go back and sell to the American people that, look, you know, our friends up in Canada, 
They're doing a great job on the climate change front, and and I'm okay with this pipeline going ahead. Is is there is there some room to convince them on that side of it? Do you think? Of course, there is. At the moment, Canada has, uh, you know, a national carbon tax, right? Fifty dollars a ton Canadian. Uh, moving to that number by the time Biden is going to be president. That is as a matter of carbon policy, I'm sure what a Biden presidency would aspire to. And, and I think any reasonable Canadian prime minister would say, we have in terms of that carbon tax, a, a carbon policy that is consistent with what your own advisors would want to be able to uh, impose on the U.S. side. Because what you're asking us to do to simply uh, go along with you disabling this project has an economic impact to this country that is unjustified when we've actually, quote, priced the externality of carbon emissions. So I think the prime minister would have a compelling case. Uh, that fact situation, of course, wasn't quite in place. Uh, there was just the transition at that time between Harper and Trudeau back in 2015 when Obama took the decision he did. Um, I mean, certainly a Canadian prime minister would be expected to make those points vigorously. And uh, Biden would have to, a Biden presidency, if we're going to consider that hypothetical, should give great pause to that impact and damage it would have to the Canada-U.S. relationship, especially yeah. after this project was moving forward with a legal permit. So that um, situation would be different. Yeah. You know, and in terms of, you know, convincing the Americans of why it's in their interest, obviously there's there's value in in this project for, from a Canadian perspective. But, you know, certainly there's there's good reason for the Americans to want this to go ahead, isn't there? Every environmental assessment that has been done on this has always come to the conclusion on the American side that the impact of this project on global emissions is immaterial. And secondly, there are demonstrable benefits to the United States as represented by this heavy oil going into its U.S. refineries for which they're optimized to run on, giving them more supply diversity uh, relative to Venezuela or Mexico. Uh, so the benefits to the United States economically have never been really debated. What's always been debated is the fact that certain U.S. Well, the former Obama administration simply felt it didn't want to be complicit in a project that was moving Canadian Dilbit because of, quote, the carbon intensity, uh, which is the fact that when we produce Canadian Dilbit, the emissions per barrel of oil produced, they took issue with how, how high that was. Um, the argument around that is more subtle than that, but nonetheless, uh, making the point that Biden would have every opportunity to assess a different set of facts and potentially by a very strong advocacy by a Canadian prime minister, change his mind. And as you say, right, I mean, there, there is that capacity of these Gulf Coast refineries that it's not it's not American oil that, uh, that, that we're displacing here. Obviously, if there's no Canadian heavy oil coming, that's that's just going to that's a void that's going to be filled by Venezuelan oil, Mexican oil and, and maybe from other countries. Right. And people should recognize that the significant increase in American oil production out of the Permian, which is a kind of lighter oil than Canadian Dilbit, it has largely been exported. So, you know, the Biden presidency is also going to have to come to terms with the fact that its economy, going back to the Obama administration, was materially improved by 
increasing hydrocarbon exports in the United States. And yet he is, he would be thwarting an integration with Canada to both countries' benefits because of, quote, the carbon intensity of Canadian Dilbit, even though we have right now probably the highest carbon tax of any G7 country. So again, Canada's been more of a forced mover on carbon pricing than anyone else. One would like to think that even a Biden presidency would remember that. A Biden candidate is willing to. Yeah. All right, Dennis, we'll leave it there for now. See where this whole thing goes from here. Uh, but appreciate your insight. Thanks for making and some time for us. Thank you today. so much for having me on. Thank you, Rob. All right. Take care, Dennis. Uh, that's uh, Dennis McConaughey. He's a uh, former executive with TransCanada Energy, uh, 30 years uh, in the energy industry, uh, currently a visiting fellow at the uh, uh, Public Policy and Energy uh, Studies Schools at the Ivy Business School, Western uh, University of Western Ontario, adjunct fellow at the Niskanen Center, uh, and has mentioned uh, the author of a handful of books on the uh, energy industry, his most recent uh, being breakdown, the pipeline debate and the threat to Canada's future. More at his website, doce.ca. That's Dialogues on Canadian Energy. Well, more details starting to emerge about the gunmen responsible for the recent horrific massacre rampage in Nova Scotia. Uh, more details emerging through this uh, ITO, although it's uh, redacted, this uh, information to obtain document released by a judge today. Uh, those are the documents police file when they want to uh, conduct a search of someone's property. Uh, but apparently, you know, there, there was there were a lot of concerns about this guy, maybe a lot of red flags uh, around him as well. But certainly, as we look at how the events transpired on, on that fateful weekend, you know, a lot of questions as to how the RCMP chose to respond to this, how they handled it. Obviously, one of the big questions right away was the question of why there was no emergency alert that went out. We had a situation that uh, carried over from one day into the next. Uh, were people getting the information they needed? Were the RCMP reaching out to, to local police detachments uh, to try to get some cooperation or at least some coordination and maybe trying to, to block off uh, certain roads uh, to try to stop this guy? But I think the questions run deeper than that. Uh, in Nova Scotia, there are growing calls for some kind of a, a public uh, inquiry into all of this to try to understand how and why this happened and how things unfolded along the way. And certainly some questions, too, about the decisions made by the RCMP. Uh, and certainly, I think to a lot of observers, this whole situation represents a lot of failing. Uh, on the part of the RCMP. Uh, Paul Palango is a veteran uh, journalist uh, and author who's written extensively about the RCMP, including a number of books over the years. Uh, joins us on the line here this afternoon. Paul, great to talk to you here. Welcome to the program. Hey, I'm glad to be back. I haven't talked to you for many years. It's been a while. It has been a while. appreciate you joining us. So we'll let people know as well. You had a piece the other day up at uh, mcleans.ca on, on some of this. And I know you got more coming, but let's sort of take a step back here, Paul. And I mean, you know, we, we look at what happened in Nova Scotia, how horrific it was. Obviously, the, the responsibility lies with the, uh, you know, the gunmen who, who committed these horrible murders. But when you look at how the police responded to this, I mean, what, what stands out to you, though, first of all? Well, I've talked to, actually, since I wrote the piece of McLean's, um, I've talked to some more senior officers and, and executive senior officers, uh, former ones in the force, and they say what stands out to them was the total lack of readiness, total lack of um, preparedness for this kind of event. The 
once it un- began to unfold, it appears there was no incident commander took w- was appointed. Nobody was in charge. It, they just flowed along, and and it turned into a cascading series of failures for, right from the outfit, uh, right from the beginning on Porta Pic Beach Road, when the first officers showed up, found bodies on the on the road, backed up to the top of the road, uh, called for help. A corporal arrived, and apparently the corporal came, and she froze. That's the story. Didn't, they were banging on her window to do something. They didn't know what to do. They panicked. And this isn't, you know, and I want to make sure, Rob, that you understand this. Mm-hmm. I'm not attacking the individual police officers. They've got a tough job. What I'm attacking, is, attacking and really concerned about is the system in which they work that left them unprepared. Right. Yeah. And that's an important distinction to make. And I mean, uh, you know, we, we've had these tragedies in the past uh, where police officers have been targeted, where, um, you know, there have been mass shootings, you know, and, and look, presumably we're, we're learning from those uh, that, that training is adjusted to, to reflect the, the possible need to, to respond to a situation like this. And I mean, does it beg the question, Paul? I mean, are, are those are those lessons being learned? Well, no, they're not being learned by the RCMP because the RCMP has essentially had an attitude since, you know, for the last 30, 40 years I've been dealing with them that nobody tells them what to do. They know what they're doing. It's They're the, the masters of their own domain. And you, you notice these shootings and all these horrific things that have happened over the last 10, 15 years have been in RCMP territories. And why is that? A senior officer, um, a senior former officer, explained it to me this way. He says, in the cities uh, where you have very little, um, very little happening like this, because the officers in the city are on their game. There's a lot going on. They're constantly on their game. They have systems to deal with things. They have proper backup. They're properly trained. Whereas the Mounties are a rural police force, essentially, outside of the uh, suburbs of Vancouver and the tiny city of Moncton. They're a rural police force, and they tend to uh, get lulled into a, uh, you know, a false sense of security, that they can deal with it, nothing much is going on. And so the RCMP, you know, it, it, what it does is gets by with as little as a manpower as possible. And... Even though they'll sign a contract saying they're going to have so many officers, they're 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 basically skimping by. They're, there's actually a phrase for for it that's used in the forest: "Risk it out." You know, uh, we don't have enough people on this shift. We're going to risk it out. And you saw what happened when they risked this one out. Right. It was interesting too, and I know you you've been asked about it that you've you've got local police detachments uh, that that could perhaps be involved in the investigation, perhaps even just be involved in uh, in in setting up uh, roadblocks and checkpoints as a way well, to at least try to identify where this guy was going. Rob, I identified that in the first hour because I looked at it when I woke up that Sunday morning, and my wife pointed it out to me. I looked at the map and I said, "How did he get from here to here? He had to go through Truro." There's 24 officers or so, sworn officers in the Amherst Police Department, about 30 minutes one way, uh, 36 in Truro the other way, and neither of these police forces were engaged. In fact, uh, the shooter on the Sunday morning, 12 hours after he had started his rampage, drove down the main street of Truro, and the Truro police weren't even aware of it till later that week when a photo was released showing him on their streets. 
So the RCMP didn't bring them in, and that's that's part of having no incident commander. Nobody was in charge. They sort of, I don't know what they thought they were doing, and they allowed him to basically creep through there, go down, uh, shoot one Mountie officer, kill another one. You have to wonder, why were those officers there? Where was the SWAT teams? Why didn't they choke off the roads? Why didn't they attack the problem? The, the questions go on and on and on. Well, I mean, is, but is that, a, is that a communications failure, or does it also tell us something about the relationship between the RCMP and, and local police detachment? Well, I think it's both. I think it's a communications failure because nobody set up an alarm, set out the proper alarm. Uh, they were trying to basically handle it themselves, it seems, or nobody wanted to wake up the boss on a, on a Sunday morning. That's part of it. The other problem that, that I see in this is that they realized from the outset that they had a problem. They were slow to arrive. Once they arrived, they were essentially catatonic. My understanding is that the officers at the top of the road sat there, could hear the gunshots, could see the fire, and did nothing. I mean, some of them were frantic. They wanted to move, but the corporal was frozen. That's the story I hear. So none of this none of this happened. So they had to, because this happened, they, it's an RCMP mentality. They realize it's as bad as it is. They don't want to call in a local police force because any, any subsequent inquiry, they're not going to be able to control. They're not going to be able to sort of uh, create a narrative that's sort of beneficial to the RCMP because they're going to have to depend on other police forces who may be subject to other authority. And, yeah. I can see that sort of defensiveness right from the beginning. In terms as well of communicating to the public what was going on, we, we learned today through this uh, this ITO document that uh, it was 12 hours that police knew uh, the gunman was driving a replica RCMP cruiser before they told the public. I think it was around quarter after 10 Sunday morning. They, they knew the night before. Um, so all of these questions about why there was no alert, why this information was sat on for so long, what, what do you make of that? Well, it's it's basically they knew from the the first car that arrived, uh, a guy came up the road and said, a guy in a police car just shot, shot at me. So they knew right away. Why didn't they do it? I think part of it is this uh, stupid Mountie pride, because now they were left with a real conundrum they'd never had any training on, a guy in a police car dressed like them going around to shoot people. If someone said to me, well, you know, if they put out an alert uh, and a Mountie came to your door, people wouldn't answer the door. I said, well, there's no reason on that Sunday morning for a Mountie to go into any door. Their whole job was finding this guy and protecting citizens, blocking off the roads and bringing him down. And not only that, Rob, they didn't put out an alert, but the feature on the car that made it distinct in Nova Scotia, that it had a push bar or, or a ram package. Yeah. No Mountie cars in Nova Scotia have push bars or ram packages, those big you know, things on the front of the car. They didn't even tell their own officers, it seems, that that's what they're looking for. So when the officer Morrison first came upon him in Shubenacadie, maybe he should have noticed there was a push bar in the car. He got shot. And then he had a push bar in a car that you know may or may not have been made of aluminum, which gave him an advantage over Constable Heidi Stevenson. And took her, you know, and it dragged her out of the car and killed her. And then went on to kill yeah. other people. And and the Mounties would like to say, oh, look, we we brought him down. You know, we, and, and, and Mountie defenders said, well, the Mounties did their job. But what happened, you know, after Heidi Stevenson is killed, she shouldn't have been there. 
There's no way she should have been alone in that car. She could, she was, you know, she had spent 13 years in the musical ride, which is a whole other thing. But then he went on and killed someone else, Gina Goulet. He took her car, which happened to have no gas. So he had to stop for gas in the, at the station 24 kilometers away. As it happens, a, a number of Mounties were in that gas station, including a canine officer who noticed this guy and was a little suspicious about him. He wasn't driving the car they said he was driving, but, you know, he used his instinct. One thing led to another, and the guy was killed. But it wasn't like it was brilliant police work that brought it down. It was an accidental encounter and one alert policeman who didn't didn't know very much, in fact, was fed the wrong information yeah. by his own force. Well, yeah, that's the thing, right? I mean, I suppose most investigations depend on some degree of luck, but that, that was an incredible amount of luck that not only did he need to stop for gas, but that the uh, officers happened to be at that same gas station at that exact moment. Otherwise, you know, th- this could have been a lot worse even than it was. Well, my suspicion is, like, from day one, my wife says, uh, you know, she wasn't going to give me this one when I said it the, the day it happened. But I said, my suspicion was that the, per, the, the, the police officer that shot him was the canine officer, because he'd be trailing the scene. He wouldn't have to be there right away. He'd be there to chase down a suspect if he ran to a field, a building, or something like that. But still, 13 and a half hours later, uh, he was gassing up. Why so late? It's good that he was there. And he used his instinct. Or did his dog see something? Did his dog alert him? We Mm -hmm. don't know that yet. But something in my mind tells me that something like that happened. Well, as you say, I mean, there, there's a lot we don't know. There's a lot of questions that need to be answered. As you say in your piece, there's there's going to be a need for some recrimination here. Is it is it a public inquiry we need, Paul, or how do we get to the well, bottom? Well, absolutely, of you need a public inquiry. But I think there's going to be other stuff coming out in the near future that's going to you know uh, even increase the pressure on the RCMP. I mean, right now, like you know, some of the criticisms I've received are, oh, you can't blame the RCMP for this madman. He did this, this, and that. Well, yeah, I don't think you can blame him for the first eight or ten or maybe 12 people who were murdered. But after that, you have to seriously ask how much culpability they have for the remaining 10 or 12 murders. And then there's some suggestion that, um, how should I phrase this? Uh, There were things in the past that may put the culpability entirely on the Mounties. Um, that that remains to be uh, uh, discussed yet, but I, I would just float that one out there, that there's some stuff going on in the background. And it has a lot to do with what's going on. And like if you look at today's story, mm-hmm. where you're seeing uh, the, the police have redacted the uh, informations for search warrants yeah. and put out the, you know, the easiest ones. Oh, the guy had five guns in his car. But why are they redacted? What are they hiding? What investigation is there? And it's my understanding there's some really damaging stuff in there towards the RCMP or other police forces who may have been involved, say Halifax Police. There's something to be found, in, and uh, it's going to come out eventually. Well, all right, we'll wait for that much more. As mentioned, your piece up at uh, mcleans.ca. Uh, Paul, good to talk to you here today. Thanks so much for making some time yeah, for us. And, Rob, the last thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I know this is a big issue in Red Deer where they're looking at the Mounties. 
it's something maybe we should discuss in the in the future because uh, there are issues within provincial policing that we can't possibly get into now. Yeah. Great point. Paul, we'll talk again. Appreciate this. See Thank you, Rob. Take Bye. care. There you go. Paul Belango, a veteran journalist uh, and author, uh, written three books uh, on the RCMP and uh, written quite extensively as well about some of the issues with the force. So a lot of problems he sees in, in how this was handled and some questions that need to be answered. And certainly, I, I think it's, it's a very interesting question. Why is so much of this document redacted? What, what, what is there still that, that would be a secret? And was he under investigation? What more do we know about past interactions then with with the force and and the gunman? Well, certainly the pandemic has had a big impact on our political discourse, the issues that are at the forefront, the issues that have kind of fallen by the wayside. And it wasn't that long ago that we were spending a lot of time talking about Alberta's place in Confederation and how that might change or evolve going forward. Now, that's one of these issues that has kind of uh, dropped off the radar, I think, for the most part. And I guess that's going to remain the case for now. At least that's what the Alberta government has decided. Now, back in uh, November of last year, as you recall, the premier set up this panel, what they called the Fair Deal Panel, looking at ways in which Alberta could get a, a better deal out of Confederation or a better relationship with the federal government and the rest of the country. Uh, So that panel was tasked with hearing from Albertans and preparing a report on on how that relationship might change. That work has has been completed, is done, and the panel has submitted its final report to the government. But we're not going to see it for now. The government has decided that this report uh, will kind of sit on the shelf for now. They say, quote, it will not be released until the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic is over. But what does that mean exactly? Are we talking about a few weeks from now, a few months from now? Is this going to be released, you know, two years from now? Uh, again, like I say, it's it's not quite clear. I mean, it will be released eventually. Uh, so how long should we, we have to wait to see it? Well, joining us uh, for some thoughts uh, on all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program one of the members uh, of this panel, former MLA and Cabinet Minister uh, Donna Kennedy-Glanz, joining us here this afternoon. Donna, great to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Rob. It's good to be here. All right. So when, when the panel's uh, report was submitted, I mean, did, did you have any idea that this was going to be the response? Did you think it was likely that there was going to be maybe some delay in releasing it? Well, we knew there was going to be a delay, and we were actually uh, delayed getting it finalized. It was due March 31st, and we got an extension to Easter to finalize the report because COVID just started emerging and we were all in particular the ministry that we were dealing with intergovernmental affairs in the government of Alberta was scrambling because all of their people weren't coming into the office very understandable and, and we got a, a two-week extension on the deadline finalized the report for Easter and it hasn't been touched since then so that that's very encouraging we attempted to have it filed a couple times and it was finally accepted by the government on may 5th and then we saw the announcement on the weekend right um so i I guess you've all kind of then what sort of sworn an oath of of secrecy here I, i mean i guess you would have some idea of what's in this report but ultimately it's it's up to the government to release it Absolutely. I mean, people were participating in these town halls. So anyone who was at a town hall would have heard what was said. And that's important. And there was coverage, media coverage of those events. 
uh, lots of discussion about that. We then, after all, I, I attended um, myself um, 10 of public uh, gatherings across the province, town halls, and then 15 MLA-hosted town halls. So that's quite a few. Then we went and looked at, at uh, particular interest groups, had things they wanted to say and they wanted to meet. We met with them. We met with some experts. And then Moin Yahya, uh, who's a lawyer, uh, law, uh, law prof at U of A, and myself were the authors of the report. So we took the pen and we uh, negotiated consensus across eight members of the panel. And that took about a month to do that work. So you know, in that process, you're talking to an awful lot of people. So people have a good idea of elements of what's in the report. But the roll-up and the tone are, you know, obviously that's in the final document. Right. What are your thoughts on, on how worthwhile this whole pro- whole process was? Rob, I feel really strongly in the value of listening to Albertans. And, and I certainly don't have to convince you of that role. People need to be heard. I think people are so tired of decisions being made by somebody else about things that affect them, Um, you know, whether it's Ottawa or Toronto or oil prices being set outside the country, that just being able to verbalize, one, their frustration or what they see positively, and most importantly, what they see as a solution. What should our governments be working on? Where should we spend our energy? That's, I think that's the most important role of government. So that part of the process I thought was incredibly valuable. And it wasn't just us listening, and we were listening, but it was also, if you were in a town hall and you were, you know, in a community and you stood up and said what you wanted to say, other people in that community listened to you and you heard what they had to say. It takes guts to do that. I thought that was actually constructive, not feeding the angst. And I know people were critical of that. You, you know, it was, if that was the only role, then that would have been actually, I think, quite, quite a vile thing to do. But listening to people and saying to them, okay, well, what, what do you want to spend our energy? Where do you want to focus? I think that's really important. The, this government seems very um, focused on on some sort of, you know, inquiry. We've got the Steve Allen inquiry, which, frankly, we should talk about because that inquiry, where is it? Uh, I know um, they were they were to submit something in early February, an interim report, and a final report yeah. due early July. I mean, where is that? Uh, the McKinnon report that's public. Uh, this mm-hmm. Mintz Harper Council, another uh, you know blue ribbon panel. Um, how will their uh, information be put forward to the public? Those questions really need to be answered, and that's why. I hope our government is clear about what they're going to do with this report. I get it. We're in the middle of a pandemic. And yes, we really need to focus on the science and how we roll out our economy and open up our economy. But people, if you want people to not be cynical about these kinds of processes, then you've got to be honest with them. And so I hope this government is listening and listens to calls like this one where we can say, you asked people to do that. You ask people to step up at town halls. They spoke up honestly. They took some risk. They're expecting you to deliver, and they are. Yeah. 
Well, what's a realistic uh, timeline here? When, when do you think this report should be released? Personally, I don't think there's a lot of damage in releasing the report. It, it's something the government's got to decide on what actions it wants to take. It's a constructive document that reflects back to people what they said. And it also talks about different ways for Alberta to decide to use its powers in our constitution or not. I mean, we've had the luxury of having a very thriving economy for a long time, and there were things that we chose not to pay attention to. Other provinces like Quebec did pay attention to those things. It may not be part of our priority list to do those things, but I think just clarifying things, letting people understand in layman's terms, not not legal terms, what, what does Canadian Federation look like? Who gets to decide what? Who makes our decisions? I think those are really important questions for people. And and this isn't a, you know, everything isn't politically loaded. These are just facts. This is how our country functions. We're pretty pragmatic people. I actually, I think prairie people are the most pragmatic people. We get it. So let's work with what we've got and focus on building up this province. But I, I think it's kind of noise in the system and it, it just needs to, you know, rather than churning in it let's just face the facts mm-hmm. I, I do think right now i mean it's not just about dealing with with the pandemic but it it, it also speaks to to the nature of the, the relationship in the moment between alberta and ottawa or the provinces in ottawa the, the need for kind of some national harmony some national cooperation i think maybe people see this this report or or the the idea of this report as picking a fight with with Ottawa, Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. does it necessarily have to involve that? It's interesting, actually. And one of the most confirming things, Rob, for me, listening to people across the province is, uh, yes, there's anger, and yes, there's frustration with the fact that Toronto and Montreal combined can, you know, pick a federal government just because of their numbers. But there's also a sense of cooperation. There's a very strong sense and it's not namby pamby it's realistic it's how do we work collaboratively half of the report is about how do we work collaboratively and half of the report is here are things that we could choose to do unilaterally that we necessarily haven't chosen to do in the past it's not about picking a fight during a pandemic it's absolutely critical that we focus on collaboration i i, I everybody gets that and certainly I, I understand that for that reason alone that any sniff that we're you know picking a fight with ottawa is, is ill-timed but most of the people in this province realize that we're not going to do it alone. We have to collaborate, whether it's opening up our borders to other provinces. And our government's done that to, you know, saying we want to seat at the table when when the federal government does negotiations about climate change because it affects our province so significantly. Is that picking a fight with Ottawa or is that just being clear about what our priorities could be? Yeah. Yeah, I think those are important questions. So... I, we'll see this report at some point, presumably. I, I don't think, and I know you, you don't think, that this isn't an attempt to, to bury this report, obviously. I think it would be incredibly cynical of a government to go out and invite people to town halls and then say, 
Well, we heard you, but we, we don't really yeah. want to tell the rest of the province what we heard. <laughs> I think that's that would be a pretty uh, uh, a pretty uh, cynical thing to do. Yeah. I can't imagine that happening, but I, I do think we need some more clarity on what the role what the role of all of this outreach is. I mean, some people will slam these kinds of initiatives, especially blue ribbon panels. You know, you're just pandering to uh, a conservative uh, group. Uh, you're, you're just finding like-minded people um, and you're paying them lots. Uh, just to be clear, I mean, I took this role quite seriously and I think all the people on the panel took this role quite seriously. We got our costs covered. So if I was staying at a hotel or if I was taking the Red Arrow bus up and down the highway in the wintertime, which which I was, mm-hmm. those costs were covered and we got an honorarium. But it didn't replace the income that I would have generated if I was doing my normal work. Right. It's a decision to participate in this kind of thing. And you're, you're exposed to criticism and, and that's actually valid. I don't mind that. But the idea that we're somehow there to reflect back to the people who picked us, their points of view, I think most of us don't have, I mean, that's not my game. I'm not interested in that at all. I I don't want the premier's job and I don't want to be a mirror to the premier either. I think that's Mm -hmm. not a very useful role. But if we don't do this properly, um, people aren't going to sign up. They're not going to agree to do these kinds of things. And then we are going to end up with, uh, you know, people who are insider insiders. And, and that's not going to be that helpful. Indeed. Well, we'll leave it there for now, Don. And I guess uh, it's all in the, the government's court now. So uh, perhaps we'll have an opportunity to revisit this sometime soon. But in the meantime, thanks for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Well, thank you, Rob, for asking those questions. Thank you. Right. Take care, Donna. All the best. Uh, that is Donna Kennedy Glantz, uh, one of the members of the Fair Deal panel and a former MLA and cabinet minister herself. And so they've done their work. She believes that it was worthwhile work. She was glad to have been a part of it. As she says, I mean, she's understanding to a point of the situation government's in. But doesn't it make sense, though, uh, that that you just release the report now? Say, okay, the panel did its work. Here's what they came up with. Uh, People can read it for themselves and study it and think about it and talk about it. We're not going to address the recommendations for the time being. So that's where the delay makes sense. Right. And that would be totally reasonable for the government to say, here it is. Here's what they came up with. We're going to put this aside, and we'll come back to these issues. We, we don't see dealing with all of this as a priority right now. So I think it's more the question of what the government's prepared or inclined to do that can hold off. I don't know why the report itself can't be released. Well, the investigation is now underway. Uh, following this uh, tragedy over the weekend uh, involving the Snowbirds, uh, the death of one Air Force member, serious injuries to another. Uh, in Kamloops, B.C., one plane crashed uh, in an air demonstration gone wrong. And obviously, this is a story that has really shocked the whole country. I mean, there, there's I think we all have kind of a special place in our hearts for the Snowbirds. And I know. You know, a lot of the talk last week was just how how excited people were uh, to see them or how disappointed people were that, you know, other cities like Calgary and others across the country might not get a chance to see them. You know, that having them them do these these uh, flights across the country, you know, it was kind of a, a welcome distraction or just something to get excited about. And now this is, is just turned into a, a horrible tragedy. 
Uh, and it's raising questions, I guess, about, you know, the future of the snowbirds. Uh, let me play this, first of all, this clip number five here from earlier today. Uh, the prime minister was asked about the future of the snowbirds, whether the, the snowbirds should be grounded. Here's what he had to say. I have uh, had a couple of conversations uh, over the past couple of days with the Minister of Defence and I know uh, he and others are very closely engaged uh, with the families and I uh, will of course be speaking to uh, uh, to the family of, of Captain Casey and, and others. Um, I think there are very good questions being asked by a whole lot of people about uh, uh, about safety right now, uh, first and foremost by the uh, RCAF, and there is going to be a proper investigation, and we're going to allow them uh, to do their work before we make assumptions about what uh, might be the outcome of that investigation. But it does seem like some of the questions about the snowbirds can, can apply to, to the broader Canadian forces, right? Do, do they have the, the planes that they need? Do they have the support that they need? So maybe there, there's some bigger issues that need to be addressed here beyond uh, simply the, the question of the snowbirds themselves. But uh, certainly I think this, this tragedy has underscored the importance of examining and addressing these issues. Joining us uh, to talk more uh, about all of this, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, uh, veteran foreign affairs correspondent uh, Matthew Fisher has a very interesting piece on all of this up at globalnews.ca. Matthew, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Rob, for having me on. Good to speak with you again. Yeah, and, and so certainly I think, you know, the country in, in mourning for the loss of uh, this member of the Canadian Forces and member of the beloved Snowbirds and obviously hoping for the best as, uh, you know, the continues his, his recovery from all of this. But well, what kind of questions do, does this raise for you, Matthew? Well, the first one is the one that the Prime Minister began his answer by saying it was an excellent question, and then, as is the Prime Minister's wont, he did not answer the question at all. Right. Uh, he just said that there's an investigation. The first question is, why have successive Canadian governments, uh, apparently with the backing of those who vote for them, uh, and the media, uh, not demanded and um, procured new equipment. Uh, different branches of the Canadian forces have different problems in this regard. It used to be we would say the Navy was in the worst shape. Uh, the last couple of years, it's become the Air Force, and it is absolutely shocking, shocking, the list of aircraft that we force our young men and women to fly in terms of their age. Uh, would you put your family uh, every day into a car that was 57 years old. And if you were able to, you would understand that it requires an awful lot of upkeep to keep uh, that vehicle on the road, parts and everything else. Well, we do that with the Snowbirds. The Snowbirds, Rob, were procured on the watch of John George Diefenbaker. Dwight D. Eisenhower was the U.S. president. That is how old those aircraft are. They, we took delivery on them in 1963, which was just after Lester Pearson became the prime minister. There was talk over 20 years ago about replacing them, and then a little bit more than 10 years ago, the Harper government said they would be replaced and then never really got around to it. And the Trudeau government has not even taken it up as an issue. But that's only one part of the problem with the Air Force. Our fighter jets are almost 40 years old, and that has been a huge procurement fiasco, the F-35. Uh, we have reconnaissance aircraft 
uh, the ones that go out and hunt for submarines, they're 38 years old. And the government, rather than buy new ones like all of our allies, including little New Zealand, we are going to extend the life of those aircraft so we'll fly those aircraft until they're at least 60 years old. Even the aircraft the Prime Minister flies in himself, the, the Airbus, those Airbuses are nearly 40 years old. And if you go to a summit meeting, it is embarrassing as a Canadian to see everyone roll up in very good aircraft with excellent comms and everything else for their leaders. And Canada rolls up with an, an old civilian airplane from Ward Air, if you remember in Alberta, Ward mm -hmm. Air. That's where we got those aircraft. That is the state of the Canadian Air Force. And it is shocking. Successive governments have uh, let this go on. And now, of course, we've got the coronavirus, Rob. We've got the coronavirus. How are we going to pay for anything? And the government will trot out as an excuse that they can't buy the military new equipment because we have all these huge yeah. deficits because of the coronavirus. And it will be true. But the question is why successive governments. The Chrétien government was terrible on this subject. The Paul Martin government was terrible. The Harper government talked a better game, did get a couple of important pieces uh, like New Hercules uh, C-130 aircraft and C-17 transport aircraft, but they talked a good game, didn't give us the F-35s, and the Trudeau government has uh, said in a white paper they're going to a lot, do a lot and they've done nothing. It is terrible from top to bottom, and it's not just a liberal thing, it's both parties. Yeah, no, it's true. And, and, and as you say, we're still a long way from resolving this. You know, it's interesting. You note in your piece, I mean, you know, not only are these planes old, but just being able to keep them in the air, to keep them serviced, to, to have or to find parts for them uh, requires a tremendous amount of effort. And, and to just be able to get these these nine planes in, in the sky and to have them go across the country you know, required not just a lot of work, but a lot of uh, ingenuity when it came to, you know, the, the people who maintain these planes. Well, the original order was for 212 of them, and we used them as our trainer for pilots in the 60s and 70s who were on the Voodoos, the uh, CF-101s, and then the CF-104s, the Starfighters, and then the F-18s. Those were retired, and all the work, because of money, uh, all the work to train pilots has now been uh, farmed out to private firms. It costs less money so that the military don't even train our pilots. Uh, anymore. Uh, and this search for parts, you're absolutely right, Rob. It is incredible. They go into the Canadian military operates a graveyard for dead airplanes. That graveyard is, is a place called Mountain View near Canadian Forces Base Trenton. Trenton, as you may know, is uh, just to the east of uh, or just to the west of uh, Kingston, just to the east of Toronto. They go in there to the, where all the old tutors are to go and get all the widgets and things. And them's that they can't get, Rob, they have to make themselves. So they, they go into a shop with pieces of metal and molds and make them. This is not the way to run an Air Force. No, it's not. Um, and, and I know you spoke with some experts, including uh, Laurie Hahn, who people out here might, might recall as a member of parliament, but spent a long time in, in, the, uh, in the Air Force. Um, you know, his thoughts on, on what happened. Is there any sense here? And obviously we realize these are old planes and, and difficult to maintain, but what's the sense of maybe what might have gone wrong here? 
Well, uh, first of all, I must say that even those those aircraft are really old, just as our Sea King helicopters flew for, yeah. what, 50, 60 years. Uh, they are in excellent shape because the military uh, demands such a high technical standard. So uh, it will not be, I think, because the military did something wrong or technically because these aircraft are old. Meticulously maintained, they are. It will perhaps, though, be because it's very old equipment. There's talk of the compressors, and I don't really understand all of this, but the compressors that are tied in with the engines may have failed. It could have been a bird strike. But what clearly happened from the videos that are available, and that's unlike the unfortunate cyclone helicopter accident in the Mediterranean where we did not have images, literally, of what happened. Here there's video. So you can see the two pilots or the two people in the cockpit, one was not a pilot, but ejected, uh, but they ejected late. Now, why did they eject late? It was, it looked like on takeoff, if you have an aircraft in trouble, a uh, high performance aircraft, what you do is you, what the pilots call zooming, and you zoom, and that means you try, if you've lost power, to uh, get the plane higher, um, the ailerons and whatnot, to move the aircraft higher, which gives you more time to either relight your engine or look around for a place possibly to land. That's what the pilots did. That's why in the video you can see the aircraft that crashed veer off from the other one and was seeking altitude. What happened then was the aircraft stalled. Now, did it stall because uh, of uh, pilot error? I doubt it, but it is possible. The stall speed on a snowbird is about 130 knots an hour. Uh, the aircraft was going about 220 knots an hour when it got in trouble, but of course it loses speed very quickly, particularly if it's going up rather than down. You, you lose more speed. Uh, so when you study that, they were late getting out of the cockpit. Only one of the parachutes blossomed, which is what they say when a, a parachute opens. That was the parachute of the pilot who survived, though he's in serious condition. Uh, and the woman beside him uh, uh, in the co-pilot seat, who was not a pilot, a public affairs officer, uh, she was the one, unfortunately, who perished. Her chute did not open. Uh, and uh, so that is the description of it. And it looks like the pilot, at least initially, did everything right in such a situation. Uh, what went on in the, at the last second, we don't know, but they'll be gathering all the evidence. They've got video evidence. They'll have physical evidence from the ground. This isn't like something going down in an ocean. It's all available to them. And uh, we will get answers on this. Indeed. Much more at globalnews.ca, including uh, your piece today on all of this. Matthew, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Rob. All the best. Uh, that is uh, Matthew Fisher, Global uh, News uh, Foreign Affairs Correspondent, globalnews.ca. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.